nice things. Hello, good evening, and welcome to another thrill-packed, fun-filled edition of Nice Things. Nice Things. The antidote to modern living. And joining me, Sir Michael Livesley, this evening, we have... Uh, News Bunny. (laughs) (laughs) But, but But the second, can I point out, I'm the second... The second news bunny. Now, this may seem confusing. I'll tell you what I'm talking about, shall I? Go on, um, please I've do. retrieved. I've retrieved some um, VHS tapes. This is gold, this stuff. All right, these, uh, the boys and girls at home need to be made aware these are Sony VHS tapes. They are Sony VHS okay. tapes, which I recorded back in 1997. And these are some of the uh, programmes I wrote for live TV. Now, ah, Yes. Now, the archive of Live TV currently sits in a lockup in Bermondsey um, after it was sold on eBay for £14,000. Um, and okay. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I mean, they are literally in a lockup, so they're not exactly being looked after particularly well. Does so Arthur thought, Daly have the keys? I think it does this. sound a bit like that yeah. sort of thing. Bermondsey, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Not me. Yeah, it's exactly that. So, but fourteen grand for the entire archive. I mean, you'd pay that just for the very first Spice Girls appearance on television, which was on live TV. Really? Um, oh yeah. Oh, okay yeah, the, then. Okay. Their so, very first appearance, um, yeah. first interview, and the first time they ever did. Well, I won't say they performed "Wannabe" live, but they certainly mimed to it. Right. Live. Um, and it was sold on eBay for fourteen grand. Um. But God knows what condition these tapes are in. I did make contact with the bloke who's got them at one point, and I said, uh, have you got them? Are you going to do anything with them? He's like, and he told me they're in the lockup. I said, are you going to do anything with them? I don't know. Oh, right. Wow. So I've been digitising some of my early work. and You've been digitising your output, dear. I was digitising my output, indeed. Yes. It reminded me of um, 1997, when... Um, New Labour came to power. Oh. And, yeah, but it reminded me that as... I mean, it wasn't a station beyond stunts, of course. Um, they had the news bunny, of course, who would stand behind the newsreader and he would wave um, and give a thumbs up or a thumbs down to the news as it yeah. was happening. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, they wanted a bit of a publicity stunt uh, for this and they wanted a photograph of Newsy. Now, bear in mind the news bunny stank. Okay, the news bunny costume for five years, it was never dry cleaned, not right. once. So it just stank of vomit and, and BO and stale beer. Why? Filth. All it right, was why? disgusting. Did, did the guy go and, or the girl go and sit in the bar afterwards or something? Well, it was just everybody had a go. Oh, I see. So there wasn't, it wasn't like the Stig. The, no, the, no, no, the, no, no. It no, was no. like you all, right, get in the costume. That's it. No, I mean there was um, there were there were five people who did it sort of semi regularly, but then everyone had to have a go, apart from Kelvin McKenzie and, and Nick Ferrari. No, um, but everybody else had to have a go. And so they this... had to sew one of them big V's in the back for Nick Ferrari, like yeah. like we used to do when flared trousers came back into fashion in like nineteen eighty nine ninety. We we sewed in these big triangles of, oh, of flowery God, yeah. material into our jeans. Yeah. So so the damn thing stank, but they decided they wanted it as a little photo. They wanted a picture of him meeting Tony Blair. So the way they went about it was remarkable. They decided the best thing to do was have the news bunny stand as an official candidate in Tony Blair's constituency. 
Um, and this happened. <laughs> but in order to make it legal, uh, some poor intern uh, was told that he would have to do it, but he had to change his name officially by deed poll to Mr. News Bunny. Um, wow. And he, and he did. But it turns out, if you turn, change your name by deed poll, you're stuck with it for about a year. Yeah. Which he didn't know. <laughs> and so his driver's license, his passport, everything had to then be put under the name of Mr. News Bunny uh, for at least a year. Um, <laughs> that wasn't me, I'm glad to say. But so, yes, I've been I've been digitising my output, as you say, this week. Well, and, very uh, wise too, dear. Oh, it, it's, it's actually, um, to be honest with you, it's um, a massive part of... Well, it's, all right, massive might be overplaying mm. the hand, but it's it's an intrinsic element in telling the stories of the story of the nineties culturally that the live TV thing. It absolutely it really, is. It really yeah. is. Yeah, it was. It was. You know, I mean, it was. Well, it was the number one cable station, but you know, it was just between us and the Sci-Fi Channel, so yeah. it doesn't really mean much. But um, yeah, it was uh, that was lovely. But yes, so I've been digitising the old output and watching Agony. Which and is why the show are you uh, the second news bunny then? Oh well, it's simply because you know, unfortunately, I wasn't the chap who got uh, who got to change his name by deep poll right. and meet Mister Blood. The photograph did happen, uh, I have to say, and uh, okay was very proudly displayed on the wall of live TV. It was a, They were very proud of that photo at the time, back in Yeah, when you mentioned Tony Blair, immediately I remember the, the sort of the elation and the happiness, and then I remember mm. the complete and utter betrayal. Yeah, that Which followed. is sort of, unfortunately, our final experience. <laughs> yeah. It, it tends to taint the early one, doesn't it? But... It does rather. But then, yeah. you know, this made me think as well, because, of course, what we had there... Was we had, uh, you know, the notion of cool Britannia, and for a while, for a while, it was, wasn't it? It did feel yeah. like cocaine like there was addicts drinking champagne at number ten with Tony. Uh, yes, you remember that. The Grange Hill kids did that in the White House ten years before. Yeah, so. did they do coke? Well, uh, the White the, House. They've alluded to the fact that when they went over on the Just Say No campaign, they weren't strictly sober in the White House, but they've never said exactly what happened. Ah, yeah, I'm sure um, but, Can Mustafa sneaked a, a sort of grumpy meal into the toilets <laughs> there and uh, and did what the the Beatles smoked weed, didn't they, when they got their OBEs? There's a long-standing oh, tradition of this. Yeah, mm. they went to the the toilets and smoked. And, Introduced, uh, I believe, is it right that the first person to introduce uh, the Beatles to that was Bob Dylan? I was yeah, well, this week. that's so the legend goes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, anyway, so I was thinking about all this after after digitising those today, because of course, um, th- there's been, uh, this is breaking news, Mike, as we're recording this. Wow. Um, the government has now come up with a new idea to do with television. And I can't tell if I love it or hate it. Right. Right, I think I may have read something of this. Okay. Do take the story up for everyone. Okay, so they've decided to enshrine in Ofcom regulations a legal obligation for national broadcasters to make Britishness a compulsory mm. feature of television. So right. all programmes produced by the BBC and other domestic channels must be shown to be British and they can't be too international or generic. Unfortunately, the one of the examples they gave of Britishness uh, is Derry Girls. So, what's, um, what's Derry Girls? Well, Derry Girls is a sitcom set in Derry uh, in Northern Ireland mm. during the Troubles. Um, 
So I don't know if that's the, the best example of Britishness, but it did make me think. I mean, I can't decide if this is a good thing or not. It's regulation, obviously, so I'm not sure about that. But it made me think, well, what is Britishness? And how do you regulate it? And who's going to regulate it? So it does feel like one of those things that may be being said to appease. But it's the first I thing I've so. heard about in broadcasting for a while that's not excited me, but made me interested, at least. There is that. All right, if Britishness, if, if Britishness mm. actually sort of, if that constitutes, you know, uh, a return to things involving Clive Doig and involving Spike Milligan and and involving, um, you know, lovely, nice people and nice yeah. things, great. However, yes. I immediately think about the sort of, um, you know, the Kierkegaard quote I quote often, that mm. the most successful revolutions leave the buildings intact. Um, and so what they constitute as Britishness will be quite a, a movable feast. I would um, think so. You know, and so so it's like, how do you define Britishness? I can define mm. Northern working class... Well, I can define Northwestern working Mm. class uh, Catholic culture, maybe, for me. Um, Mm. But then you move three miles down the road. You know, where I grew up, people said, you're eight. And then three miles down the road, people said, you're at. So things are very subjective. I, I I don't know if this is anything that comes from government, this mm. government particularly. I'm mm. I'm fearful. Whatever whatever they're trying to pass off as as Britishness, mm. will will be merely a wrapper. It you does worry I mean? me, and just I don't a little I, bit. I don't mean I have, see Hammer. <laughs> Although I have met Clive Doig, and he's lovely. Oh, Clive! Do- All right. I, I mean, if if Clive Doig <laughs> is an element within the, what they constitute Britishness. All right. We, right, we're we're all right, but it won't be. This is it? what be, we need. It'll we be need Paddy Clive Doig. Oh no, 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 yeah, no! There's well, no need for that sort hey, of thing. Hey, that'll ding dang do for me, ladies. Oh, oh I God. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen whatever that shit show is? Is it the one with the girls there's walking girls down on it? There's girls, and and he says, "Let the fanny meet the crab." Or that's something. that's the fella. Yeah, it, what it's is like it's a meat market, isn't it? Common. Paddy McGuinness's Saturday night meat market. You're right. <laughs> you, it's it's one of those programs that you end up sitting in people's houses waiting mm. for them, don't you? For mm. taxis and fucking hey, that'll ding dang do. He's on in the corner. Another mm. one like that might be X Factor or some other horse shit. And it's one of those programs one only sees just. In people's houses, and mm. you just like that. Fucking hurry up! Fucking hurry up! Fucking hurry up! Fucking mm. hurry up! Fucking hurry up! I can't watch any more of this. Mm. Hurry up! Well, and of course, you're not very keen on Gogglebox, are you? No. <laughs> Absolutely fucking not. Shit. <laughs> no, because it's just like it's just like people sat around watching the telly. I mean, let's be honest. If they put me and you on that Gogglebox thing. Yeah. It would. I, they can't broadcast like an hour of people going shit, shit, oh, no. No. shit. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what it would be, unfortunately. Yeah, it would be. But all right. So you're a little bit. I, I know. I know what. Uh, I I can guess why mm. you're feeling a little bit sort of um, excited by yeah. the government saying they wish programs to have Britishness. What you're doing is you're wishing to remove all elements. What you want, right, mm. is the the persuaders without Tony Curtis. Isn't it? yeah. it's, it's, like, it's like, oh, okay, are you going to do that? Oh, he ruined it, yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. What, 
but you never know, right? What I'm thinking, what I'm thinking might this it's not going to happen. What might happen is they'll they'll march on television center. They'll say to Good Morning Britain, "What are you doing here? Get yourselves out." Yeah, you yeah. wander back to Camden, get yeah. the TVAM studio up and running. You can do whatever this is from there. Yeah. Lorraine can leave. Loose women can just no, no. just burn the set. Absolute and then shit. they'll and then we'll get back to, you know, comedy and drama made in studio yeah, TC3. It I, has to happen. I know, I know, I know. And and by the way, you yeah. and I, you and I would give our jobs up and we would we would be happy to settle into the role of housewife in order to sit around all day and watch this stuff, wouldn't we? You and I would do that and we would yeah. watch Clive Doig take over yeah. and just produce everything. That's what I, I would like to I see. tend to think that whatever the definition of Britishness is, it doesn't involve uh, that. It what, really Clive won't Doig? involve that. Ugh. It won't involve that. It will no, involve... It let's have a think what it'll involve. What will it um, involve? It, Top it will gear. Inv- no, I don't think even that. I think... I don't know. Have you seen V for Vendetta? God, a long, long time ago. Yeah, there's a kind of... The, the TV channel on that is like Brit News or something like that. I can't think mm. what it is. Um, yeah. I just think that we're going to move... This goes back to our conversation that we had with Simon the other week. I get fearful whenever any kind of authority have any hand in uh, broadcasting. You know, I think yeah. that... There's that famous story, isn't there, of Mar- is it Marmaduke Hussey in the 80s who had that massive falling out with Thatcher and was, mm. I think they replaced him, is that right? Because he was going to put some documentary out. Didn't he put one out about the Belgrano and then he was going to put another one out? That's right. Now, uh, I think the big controversy was going to be that there was something called the Falklands play. I think it was right. that. Uh, right. The Falklands play, and that caused a certain amount of worry and... This is after, um, oh, there was uh, a documentary on ITV called Death of a Princess. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. That led to, uh, was it, now was that ATV or Thames? It was one or the other, but certainly that contributed, I think, to them losing the um, uh, the franchise. Certainly, it wasn't all to do with money, let's be honest. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's my concern, is that when they say Britishness in broadcasting, what's it going to be? Maybe this is linked to another commission that was announced today, and I know that you're going to be delighted by this. Oh, go on. Such a success that we're getting a second one, another live edition of Mrs. Brown's Boys. No, absolutely fucking not, no. <laughs> no, why on earth? I didn't even know there was a first live one, right, there for a was. kickoff. Yeah. No. No, no, I think the people of, of this country have suffered enough. Mm. We can't have Mrs. fucking Brown's boys. Ten years I, I of that now. No, absolutely fucking not. Does anyone like it? You ever met anyone who likes it? Well, people do, because they, they watch it and, and they make more of it because of that. Right, I'm afraid that I'm going <laughs> to have to bring out the big gun here. Because, Off we go. Because... The room, the air, it, it, it just stinks after that mention, right? I've polluted it. Oh, look Are at Are we that. feeling better? We're feeling better. We're feeling better now. Mm. Mr. Men's Stories, Volume 2. Bought mm. for me by my friend Mark. This is a wonderful thing he bought for me. Arthur Lowe, this mm. is vinyl, boys yes. and girls. Arthur Lowe reads Mr. Messy, Mr. Snow, Mr. Mean, Mr. Bounce, Mr. Daydream, and Mr. Chatterbox. 
Mm. Now we are talking, aren't we? Now yes, we're mate. talking. Fuck Mrs. Bastard Brown's boys. <laughs> I mean, that is just wonderful. And and one thing that you might notice uh, if you're watching this at home, no barcode, which is always the hallmark of joy. Um, when did when did they come in? Because they sneaked say, in, didn't they? Yeah, I'd say early eighties, wouldn't you? I think so. Yeah, but when's that record? Sure, isn't that about eighty? 82, oh, 83. Lowe died in 78, didn't he? No, no, he was 82, he died, I think. Oh, was uh, it really that late? Right, it was. Yeah. He was on He was on um, Pebble Mill the day he died, wasn't he? He did an yeah, interview on Pebble Mill. Asleep or whatever. He's falling asleep and he's confused and his microphone drops off. And he, what's going on here? And his microphone falls off. Um, and then he died that night at the theatre. And... It's a fascinating thing. I, I love this. And some people have said that this is proof that his wife was a terrible woman. Um, he, I think he had a stroke in the theatre uh, that he was performing in with his wife, Joan. And they were, they were in this, uh, this play together. And he was taken off to hospital. And they were told he, he's passed away. And, and Joan's attitude was, well, the show goes on. And she went on and she did the show that night, despite oh, wow. it, with, with his understudy. And people have, have spoken about that as as being proof that Joan was in some way a difficult woman. And certainly when you read about her, you know, she it looked like they, they would only work together. And then people are saying, is that because of her and all this right. sort of thing? But it's the old pro thing, isn't it? That the show goes yeah. on, no I matter mean, what. Oh, my God, fucking hell. Some of those... Uh, some of those states that you've had to do shows in emotionally, you know, that sort of that burning pain in your chest and your stomach and, yeah. you know, you might have been dumped or someone might have died or mm. you've just got a tax bill or whatever it may be and you, you know, and you end up doing it. I would, I would, I kind of get where she's coming from with that. I think I no, would have absolutely. done the same. I mean, yeah. it, it's to get what, two hours away from pain, mm. which is effectively what she managed to do by doing that. Yeah, you know, I can, I can I can see that. Doesn't Mark Gatiss tell the story about being told that his mother had died or something from the wings of the theatre, and that he did the show that night, and he said he was like walking on air. Uh, yeah, because yeah, it was right. just like he, you know, he'd had this cloud hanging over him because his mother was ill. Hmm. Um, I I, I kind of might be misremembering that, but I remember hearing that story and going, yeah, 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 mm. yeah. Well, I I did that when my nan died. Um, and I, I was quite young. I was, I was in a show that night. She died on the Friday, and I was in a show that night. And I think I was eleven or something like that. And wow. my immediate reaction was, "No, I'm, I've got to do it uh, at eleven. Yeah. I'm still doing it because it's yeah. important that I do." I remember very clearly that no, I have to. Yes, yeah. it is. It's important. The show must go on. I say that when when we're working with the young folk, Michael. Yes. Um, I say to them that that thing of the show must go on. It's not just a load of old toss that actors say to each other. It's true. You know, your job is to take away the pain for other people. That's right. And, and you're just the custodian of the show. And, and by that, I don't mean any particular script or any particular, you know, yeah. anything. It's just this, this, this concept of. Show, yeah, that uh, it must, yeah. it must go on. It has yeah. to, yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's, but it's no, like the Queen song, isn't it? You know, inside my heart is breaking. I don't know the the lines, but you know, it's kind of like, 
Well, I, it's I a strange don't, thing. I don't like Queen, but I, I've. I've I know it. you don't like Queen, but it's it's such a strange thing for performers that, that you know, if we were to psychoanalyze why performers are, are drawn to performing in the first place, that's mm. one conversation, isn't it? You know, that's a conversation about attention and all this other stuff. Maybe. No, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So, have you listened to the Mister Man yet? I've not had a chance. No, I only, oh. uh, you know, I only kind of received this uh, in the last couple of days, and it's just. It just takes me back because those stories, you know, um, mm. and the way they were presented. I mean, the Mister Men is an entire. You could probably there are people probably out there doing Mister Men podcasts. There are probably fifty of them, and mm. you could go on about each story for for ages and ages and ages. I mean, that show again. This goes back. This this is intertwined with all the the sort of the surrounding aspects to what something is, as opposed to actually what it is and as it happens as it happens as it happens as it happens boys and girls as it happens the books are brilliant and wonderful the tv show is absolutely sublime oh it's beautiful and but, do you know what else it is it's got the this lovely thing that you find throughout those uh, those programs which is the use of a bassoon in the opening mm. in the music the theme music and you'll find that mm. used in in the mr men it was used uh, for ivor the engine it's used for fred bassett yeah and the sound of a bassoon to me, is just pure comfort because of that. I love the sound of a bassoon to this day. Beautiful yes. sound. Yeah, I think that there's a band called North Sea Orchestra who redid Ivor the Engine, and uh, he probably still plays it. He's probably playing it right now. Um, there's a DJ on Six Music called Gideon Co. who used to... Uh, a friend of ours thought that it was like um, a show involving a lot of people called Giddy and Co., um, you know, but um, Gideon Co. on on Six Music closes out all his shows with, uh, I think they're called North North Sea Orchestra. I think they're called mm. or North Sea Radio Orchestra, maybe. Mm. Um, and they do lots of things with bassoons. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah, you got that sort of that whole seventies thing. I mean, I, I think I'm right in saying, or it might be the oboe uh, rumpole. I'm not entirely sure. Not completely sure. No, I do sure know. I do know though that um, when I was um, young, because I, I was, I was. Um, You're was still Co- young, dear. Oh, I was still young, yeah. But when I was slightly younger, uh, it was uh, rather like with um, Peter Cook when uh, he was once listening to Dudley Moore playing the playing the piano, and he just leant back with his cigarette and went, "Oh, I wish I'd been forced to learn an instrument when I was young." And <laughs> <laughs> I was made to play the violin, but really, really, ah. I desperately wanted to play the bassoon. But I said the wrong bloody instrument. I said oboe, and my uh, my parents gave in, and they bought me an oboe. And I remember seeing the case, wow. and that's, that's a bit small, isn't it? And I opened it up, and it was an oboe, and I thought, oh, shit, no, I meant bassoon. I've never forgotten my that to God, this day. Well, that reminds me of when I was a paper boy as a lad, uh, mm. when I did the evening round, um, I used to do... Was it that? Was it the Liverpool Echo? Yeah, it was. And I think that on Thursdays or Wednesdays each week, there was an advert in there that mm. said pianos. You could get a piano for 100 quid, right, um, from from whoever this guy was who sold them. And I used to beg, mm. beg my mum every week. It was like, please, I will save up. Please get me a piano. Please get... No, absolutely no. not. <laughs> so we never got the piano. And then 
one Christmas she got this Bon Tempe thing, right? This mm. two octave brown plastic thing with mm. brown plastic legs you clicked on that that worked um, with a bag of ur right inside. I, I, I'll explain how it works. I took it apart many years later. You know, when you get bored of a toy, you start taking it to pieces to see how it yeah. worked when you were a kid. So, so this wasn't an electronic thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was electric, but you plug it in and mm. then. As I found out later, because I, I took it apart, what you'd have inside was there was a, there was a sort of square box inside it mm. that had a uh, pl- uh, like gaffer tape sealed plastic uh, bag, like a, like thick plastic bag in it that filled with air. So you plugged it in, it went, Ooh, it filled with air, right? This thing, okay. And then when you pressed the key, it was like, hi, yeah. Right, so it interrupted. <laughs> It forced yeah. the air, obviously, you know, through the reed or whatever it was in order to emit a sound. So it, the sound wasn't created via synthesis. It wasn't a synthesizer. It was a sort of, you know, a, 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 an analog instrument. A hoover, yeah. yes. Basically. Yeah, did you say a hoover? hoover? Yeah, a musical uh, yeah, it's a hoover. Musical hoover. But I remember, I remember you sort of like, you'd be playing it, you'd be like, <laughs> and it would just interrupt this sort of drone. So you mm. could play the theme tune to the family nest on it quite well because it was like, it was like bad. Bagpipes. It's like electric oh, bagpipes, Paul. Wonderful. You know? Um, yes. So, yes, I never got a fucking oboe, you Protestant bastard. <laughs> you know, I never got anything like that. Jesus Christ. Well, I was oboe. most upset to I was most upset to get an oboe, Michael. I can't tell you how upsetting uh, uh, it was. Mummy, you've only bought me an oboe. <laughs> I, I did request a bassoon. <laughs> yes. I'm I think that's a very middle class story. Paul. I'm still upset about it. Thirty years later, I haven't got over it at all. You <laughs> can buy yourself a bassoon these days. <laughs> Yes, but I, yeah, I I prefer to moan about it, to be honest. Yeah, I know what you mean. Moaning is quite good. So, um, Mr. Mem- oh, you've uh, made me want to buy something now, because I've just thought, I'm, I know that there was a Family Nest cassette, and I'm suddenly thinking, was there a Family Nest vinyl? Oh, well, there was a Mr. Men vinyl, as you know. Well, I've got, we I've got one of the volumes. Which one have you got? Volume got one or volume two? two but so I've got volume one. Enjoy- Right, well, together we've got a party, dear. We have. Oh, look at that. There's now, the BBC the, Records label. For the benefit of those at home, Michael is showing me what we call Paul porn Paul on the screen porn. right now. It oh. is a BBC Records label. I often wonder with Mr. Snow, um, mm. because the story is remarkably similar to Raymond Briggs' The Snowman. It is. But anyway, that's a side conversation. So mm. the books were great. The TV yep. show was great. Being off school, watching the TV show was great. And also, there used to be a magazine that you might not remember, kids comic, called Fun To Do. No, I don't, don't remember, remember that? that one. And Fun To Do had the most wonderful Mr. Men strip in it. It was really good. It wasn't drawn by Roger Hargreaves. Hargreaves. It wasn't drawn by Roger Hargreaves, but it was really good. You know, you get a lot of um, these spin-off things that are really badly produced, but that was dead good. And so days off, you know, walking to the post office with your mum, if you may, getting her benefit money because we were poor, Paul. Um, You know, and and like being bought a fun to do because it might make you feel better uh, so so that is sort of um you know symbiotic with the taste of chopped up eggs and butter and uh, mm. and and uh, maybe the sullivans on tv i was literally about to say the sullivans but I, yeah. I, the sullivans and also the cedar tree 
I remember the yeah, cedar tree. Yeah, the cedar tree. tree. I only remember the closing credits, and I only remember people coming in with sort of badminton rackets walking into the room and going, hey, yeah. is Banny coming to the party this this it's weekend? It's exactly Ramar. what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Imagine Downton Abbey with no budget yeah. at all, but lots of soul. That's yeah. that's what it is. You know, it was it was beautifully done. <laughs> soul. And You're soul. telling me Cedar Tree had soul. I have ab- it was ATV. It was an ATV daytime. Mm. So it was one set. I, you might remember them living in this beautiful house. I remember basic- the, the the French windows. Yeah, and with a staircase leading up, but yes. that, it, the whole thing took place on one set in one room. Right. But it was beautifully done. It really was. Alfred Shaughnessy was the lead writer, and he wrote for Upstairs, Downstairs. Uh, oh, pardon me, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Drinking far too much here. Um, what, what are we drinking today, dear? We're, ju- we're just having a, we're just having some juice. That's oh, all. We're just having some today. blackcurrant juice. So we yeah. didn't stick with the uh, the Jamaican ginger ale. No, no. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> no, no. After after bank holiday, I was full. <laughs> it's all those deposits that are made over a bank holiday, isn't it? It is, yeah. But no, the cedar tree is lovely. But what I do remember very clearly, and I think this is one of these memories that I'm scared of. Um, I'm sure that the final episode of the cedar tree ends with the cedar tree falling down and coming through the house. Now, having watched the first 50 or so recently, I'm fairly sure that doesn't happen. <laughs> just the 50? Yeah, just the 50. Well, I, got, I, got, I had to get the box set, you understand. And I'm, I'm terrified of watching it to the end, just in case that doesn't happen, because I've got this memory that it definitely oh, does. yeah. So I might have to stop at the second to last episode, because it probably doesn't happen. The bloody trip. There's no tree in it, because they don't film any of it outdoors. No. So wasn't it's the, all like, inside. Was it World War One or something? Um, Isn't that a backstory to it? I seem to remember someone walking into one of the episodes in uniform, one of those yeah. sons. It's it's the le- no, it's the lead up to World War Two. Two, um, yeah, that right. that it is at the moment, and um, it's got oh god, what's his name? Philip Latham, of course, uh, President Barusa. Yeah. Um, who is the who is the father with these three daughters? One of whom couldn't act, so they killed her off quite quickly. Um, but it's it's a beautifully made thing, and it is. It's just people being quite nice. Not much happens, but you know, I love that. I love that. Yeah, you know, I kind of I recently rewatched Breaking Bad, which I know immediately you're just like that. I'm going to shut the laptop and go away. Well, go away, yeah. right? So yeah. I watched that lately, and I and I there's so much tension in it when I was watching it. I did. Th- I thought to myself, yeah, I thought. I don't know if we've had this conversation, but I thought to myself, you know, there's something in what he says about not wanting all this this stressful stuff in your life in an evening. I don't want it. Something nice. Yes. The most stress I want is Nigel Havers appearing as a guest star in two episodes of The Cedar Tree, and then he's a bit barking, and they're all going, oh, he's a bit of a pain in the bum, isn't he? And then it turns out he's got a brain tumour and he dies, but off screen. Ah. And that's it. And everyone goes, oh, Nigel's dead, is he? Yeah. Oh, tennis? End. That's yes, it. there's that's... a lot of tennis in The Cedar Tree, is there There not? is. Um, tennis and no tension. And that's what I want. Anyone for tension? No. No. No, absolutely no. not. Well, so, I watched another Netflix series this week. You may enjoy. Probably not. Called the Queen's Gambit. Is that the chess one? Yes. Now I have watched that. Ah, right. And I feel dirty saying this. 
Yes. It was very like, good, isn't it? It was all right. It was okay. Yeah, it's very good. So I think, and I have, I did I did search, I did some research the, the other day in order to find us a loophole on okay, this Okay, good, good. So the book was written in 1983. Oh, okay. Nice things to Aye, exactly. And the author died in 1984. So I think we're safe. I think we're safe with that one. Yeah, I did enjoy that. There's that lovely, the lovely uh, thing where she she looks up and and oh. she sees the moves being played above her. It's superb. That that is good. I've got to say, all right, I'll give that one a pass. That one yeah. is good. That's it a nice thing. It is superb. And um, the 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 lead actress who I'm I'm crap with names on these modern mm. things. I'm afraid, but. She's such a sort of strange, very attractive woman, but mm. strange looking. We like that. We do. She reminds me of, um, and this isn't. This sounds now like a really crash shoehorning in of your nice thing, but she reminds me of Jacqueline Hill in that respect. Whereby, you know, sort of beautiful, but mm. but a little bit strange. Yeah, absolutely, a little bit strange. Should, should we talk Jackie Hill for a moment? With my oh, nice oh, do thing? you have something involving <laughs> Jackie Hill, though, dear? I might have something involving Jackie oh, Hill. Oh, what a coinky-dink. There's a thing. Well, it was one of those things where you're just having an idle search across the internet to see if there's anything nice out there to, to purchase. And indeed, um, there is, uh, here we go, it's the biography of uh, Jacqueline Hill. Uh, it's called A Future in Five Minutes um, by Louise Bremner. Do we um, know what the title it's a strange title. Um, we do, actually, yeah. It's it's a quote, and I think it's right at the front. So if you just give me one moment. Um, here we are. It's from the Evening Standard. Um, 22nd of June, 1953, which, oh. 22nd of June, 2010 is when we did Sir Henry for the first really? time. Oh, there we go. So it's it's a lovely, it's a lovely date then in that case. It is. And the quote from the Evening Standard I shall read to you. Actresses work long hours in repertory, hoping, hoping to be noticed. They reach the West End, the stars in their grasp, and disappointment comes when the play ends after a brief run. Then, for the want of something to do, they appear on television to be seen by millions who can not help and a few who can. The few watch Jacqueline Hill and they took action. In five minutes, television had created a future. Wow. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. And, and there you go, because she appeared in television very early on. Um, Jacqueline Hill, of course, for those of you who don't know, Jacqueline Hill was one of the very first Doctor Who companions. She played Barbara Wright, who stumbled into the TARDIS, a schoolmistress. Um, and this, from the Evening Standard, is just over ten years before the first episode of Doctor Who. So she'd already been on television wow. then. She would have been about 23 at that point. And she had the most fascinating life. I've not finished it because I've been so damn busy. But to sum up chapter one and the first bit of chapter two, well, in the preface, um, her grandfather committed suicide. After three attempts, he finally managed (sighs) to commit suicide. Um, Then um, her her and her brother had a mum and a dad, and then one day mum just vanished. And there was suggestion that maybe mum had run off with um, someone who had theatrical leanings, was the suggestion. And they didn't know where mum was at all. Um, And dad worked in a local factory. Now, it it turned out that dad, who was raising them as a single father, 
and this is in the in the 30s, um, it turned out Dad knew where she was because she worked in the factory and he would see her every single day and she only lived a couple of streets away from the from the home. But she was never talked about. And there's mystery as, as to exactly what happened there. So she was raised by her mum, uh, by her dad rather, and then after a few years, her dad met a young lady um, a new young lady, and decided to impress her with a day out. And they got on a tandem, and they're going for a drive, and Dad looks over his shoulder at the beautiful young lady behind and doesn't notice the bus coming. And bump! And Jesus. Dad ends up dead. Um, Jacqueline Hill and her brother end up, end up as wards of the parish for quite some time. Um, and then eventually she got um, she got work in the Bourneville, Cadbury's Bourneville factory. And this is back in the day when if you worked for an organisation like Cadbury's, they looked after you. Yeah. So you didn't just work in the factory, they also had education. And she was able to attend uh, basically a school that was within the factory. And she'd go there one day a week. And the afternoon class was always devoted to the arts, to drama and um, visual arts and things like that. So she got into arts that way. And from there, she got a scholarship to RADA. And when she started RADA, what she wouldn't have known is that her mum was dying of tuberculosis. Um, Jesus, man. It's it's the most amazing life when you think about this. Just to have been through all that in your formative years and then to end up by, well, being, first of all, a film star, in films like The Blue Parrot, which The Blue Parrot's one of those films that's shown quite a lot by Talking Pictures TV. It's a beautiful film. It's got John Lemege in as well. So Jacqueline Hill and John Lemege on screen together is absolutely perfect. And you're right, she's she's not a conventionally, you know, for fancy lady. She's beautiful, beautiful. statuesque woman and a hell of an actress. Wonderful oh my actress. god! Amazing, amazing. I mean, exudes Beautiful. sensuality and mm. and authenticity, doesn't she? She's like she's amazing. What I can't help but, pff, I mean, the bombardment of trauma there, mm. and that goes back, doesn't it, to the sort of the show must go on. Absolutely. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I hate to say this, folks, but mm. we do live in an age where people were victimhood as a badge, don't they? Do you know yes. what I mean? And yeah, then yeah, there's yeah. this wonderful sort of stoicism about people mm. like Jacqueline Hill who are like, oh, my God, right, okay, so like you, like me, all of us, we've had shit in our lives, right? Mm. That list of trauma to such a young child is just mm. like, fuck. Right? All of that before she was 14. That all of that. is nuts. And, and I'm presuming going through World War Two as well, looking at the timeline. Going through World War Two, um, working at the Bourneville factory whilst it was being bombed, they they put a canvas net over the entire factory to try and disguise it. Imagine that, such oh, a big net that it covered the factory. And then going the in there to work, didn't you going say that in. she ended up working alongside her mum? Um, well, her mum would have worked in the factory at the same time, but by that point, she just had no memory of her mum. That's what I mean, she was, yeah. yeah, she was so young when she walked out. So her mum may well have known about her early success, but for some reason that nobody knows, there was no contact at all. Um, that seems to be quite common in the old days, doesn't mm, it? Yeah. You know, um, what is that uh, book, the... Uh, 
the go between. I can't remember who wrote it, but the the go between. It starts with the the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there, and and they certainly do things differently in the past. I mean, look at the Norman Wisdom story, you know, where he was he was essentially, you know, he he his dad fucked off another woman, and then he got in the army, didn't he, Norman? He went round there in his uniform, dead happy, went and uh, knocked on the door of this woman's house. She's like, who are you? He tells her, oh, you, you, he's at work, you know, you wouldn't even call him his dad. Oh, I'll wait for him then, sits on the couch. His dad walks in after many hours of little Norman sat there in his, his uniform, proud, wanting to show his dad he's made some of himself and maybe get his some form of, of stability and some some family back. His dad Comes in from work, walks through the front room, quick glance at Norman, into the kitchen, bit of a fucking contretemps with the missus about why mm. you've let him in. Mm. Dad then walks out from the kitchen, opens the front door, doesn't look at Norman, points outside and goes, Out! <sighs> I mean, these people, what they put up with, like John Thor, you know, mm. when his mum walked out on him and there was just him and his little brother weren't there. Him mm. and Ray. So there's John and Ray Thor, his little brother. And mm. they found out where their mum had gone to. And it mm. was her birthday or something. They bought her a little present. They dressed up in little suits. You talk about two little guys who are nine and 11 years old. And they mm. went round to their house, her house, to see their mum. And she completely snubbed them. Wouldn't mm. even accept they were her children. I mean, you know, well, people you know going what? about John Thor being a boozer and that. I'm so sorry to cut across no, no, go on. But, but the pain these people carry around in them. We, we've no fucking idea. I've no, no idea. I've not experienced anything that painful. No, not at all. Well, interestingly enough, you say that. Now then, um, Sheila Hancock has taken over the Great Canal Journeys series on Channel 4 okay. uh, with Giles Brandreth. And uh, there was a new episode on last night. And they were going, uh, they were on the Manchester Ship Canal. Um, and they went back to John Thor's school because, of course, Sheila Hancock's his was widow. It Burnage, he, he was from in. Yes, in yes, Manchester. it is. Yeah. yeah. So um, they go back to the school, and then Sheila Hancock tells the story of when her and John Thor were in a play together, playing in uh, in in Manchester, and so Sheila arranged for John to go round to his mother's house, and they went round, and he he coped with it. And he sat there and he was civil and she thought, maybe we've got somewhere here. And then they left the house and he got into the car and he just looked at her and said, don't ever do that to me again. Whoa. And drove off. Never saw her again from that point. It was I the mean, first time does, in years. She does say in the book, doesn't she, Sheila? She says how much trouble she did have with him mm. about his, his inability to trust women. Mm. Yeah, after, absolutely. After what he absolutely. did. And, and, and like, She's an incredible, I mean, an incredible actress, but when you read that book, is it Dear John? The, the Two of Us. Is uh, it The no. Two of Us? Thank you. Yeah, you're yes, quite yeah. right. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. When you read that book, you realise that, you know, she was such a, a, an amazing person to put up with what she put up with from him because she saw within that human being a really, like, special human being that was damaged. Mm. And she saw that he was worth the time. Yeah, it's a great book. That if 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 you if anyone out there hasn't got it, it's, it's uh, a wonderful one. It's again, it's a book that's full of love. Keep it'll have you crying though. Oh, it will. It it'll will. Have you but, crying? But so if you beautiful. don't fancy that, don't fucking read it, boy. <laughs> 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 but but to go back to what you were saying about Jacqueline Hill, it's just like mm. what I can't get over 
Mm. And I, I, I've got people in my own family I can talk about like this, is the, the shit that people, that how strong people actually are when they're mm. put through stuff. And I'm not going to say, oh, people nowadays couldn't deal with all that stuff. They could. They could. Mm. They just, yeah. thankfully, most people don't have to. Um, yeah. Man, you know, the, the this person that you're talking about, Jacqueline Hill, mm. that sort of like, what we're talking about, although we're not, we've, we've obviously never been cognitively aware of her life experience. Mm. For some reason, there is some some kind of, uh, is is mesmerance a word? It should be. It should there is, be. And there's it some kind now. of yeah. There's some kind of magnetism that these performers have, and I do mm. think that it is as as a result. I think all the great ones. It is as a result of the pain. It's mm. like I Olivier, so. isn't it? How he suffered with um, who was his first wife? Uh, the Gone with the Wind woman, Scarlett. Uh, Olivia Havre. de Havilland. Yeah, is that right? Yeah. 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 I thought it was Summertown's, but it don't matter. Uh, De Havilland uh, Aircraft Company, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. Um, I want to Google it, but I'm, I shan't. Um, I don't think it is Olivia De Havilland. I thought it was Olivia De Havilland, but... Um, Google. You talk, I Google. All right. Off you go. But she uh, had... She suffered greatly, didn't she, with mental health? And mm. I think potentially she may have committed suicide in the end. Um, yeah. And the, the, the pain that he felt at, at that... Um, I, I'm, my head is searching now. Jill you know, Esmond. Jill Esmond? No. Is that it? Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. Well, that's isn't that Olivia de Havilland? What oh, this is just going to turn into two old men not remembering something. It is two something. old men. But right, go on, you on. tell me. Right, hang on. Scarlett O'Hara, actress, Vivian Lee. Thank oh. you. Thank Vivian you. Vivian Lee. God. We got there in the end. Um, it's it's the V's. You, you see, you were in there with the V's, weren't you? I was there. I was Olivia. there. It's so strange that in my head, I thought Olivia de Havilland as well. <laughs> um, yeah, she committed suicide. I think I'm right in saying. Um, and and then he met Joan Plowright, and as Tom Baker says, we've said before, and uh, she brought his dick back to life. Yeah. But 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 prior to that, um, and he probably carried it for the rest of his life. But Olivia. The pain that man went through with all that mm. is just... And this is the trouble, isn't it, dear boy? Does yeah. one need to suffer in order to... I mean, Ross Kemp would suggest otherwise. To be a successful actor, do you need to suffer? Mm. What do yeah. you think, Paul? Go on, what I do you, you think? Do. Because, right. Okay, I genuinely think you do. I think that, look, what we do ultimately, and I was talking about this to a group of the group of the kiddos just today, is that you've got you've got to go up on that stage, and it's not just a question of learning the lines and saying them, is it? You've got to get out there, and you've got to. It's what Elizabeth Sladen, lovely Liz, said um, about um, about you know how do you believe in these monsters that you've got to scream at in Doctor Who? when they're not the most convincing. And she said, I just believe, because if I don't believe it, then the audience don't believe it. So you've got to have that belief in what you're doing. But I think that <coughs> in order to be able to believe, you've got to sort of like really plumb the depths, haven't you, to be able to to engage with all these imaginary things. And I think that you look at these great actors and they knew pain. The amount of actors... <clears throat> I mean, my God, I would have loved to have been around the BBC in the 60s because every single person you'd have worked with would have had war stories. They'd been through that 
conflict. Um, Peter Salis, we'll talk about him next week, but in the opening of his autobiography, he talks about being in the RAF and his first experience of acting. And he said, I decided there and then that I would, after the war, become an actor if I survived. <laughs> if I survived. You know, it's just... How old? No, I, How old then? Oh, God. Um, I think... Was he about 19? Oh, man, that's just... See what I mean? Uh, you know, they, to know These that people. sort of pain. Mm, yeah, but I think that to go on stage, if you're going to go on stage or screen and convince people of of the reality of the script, you've got to be honest with it. You can't play at it. You know, the, there's a fine line that I think, which which is between acting and performance. I think the two are very different. Perfor- performance and acting. Um, acting is is reality. Whereas is performance is playing at it. Is drama therapy then? No, and it shouldn't be. I don't no. think it should be. I think there is nothing that infuriates me more, uh, you know, working in, in education as well. There's nothing that irritates me more than, than an absolute prick who basically gets a room full of young, impressionable actors and says, I want you to lie back and imagine your dead grandmother. How did it feel? And everyone ends up crying. I think that's disgusting and that angers me. And it does nothing because then you end up with a room full of broken people. Uh, we don't need that. Um... It shouldn't be therapy, but you you know what it feels like to have been in love. You know what it feels like to have your heart broken. You know what it feels like to lose people. If you every single person will have experienced these things at some point, mm. so your job is to just go, yeah, I remember that. This is what it looked like, and this is what it felt like, and this is what it sounded like, and to actually to push that out there for your audience. I think you need to have been through that sort of thing. But I don't see it as being therapy, no, because ultimately you are just, well, what was Patrick Troughton's uh, thing? Um, shouting piss- in the evening. Shouting in the evening. Or I think as, that, I think that as our has... mate Tim Linsky said, pissing around in disguise. Yeah. I think yeah. that it has utility, though, as 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 therapy. I think that that, that can come from within. I mean... You know the the sort of the practitioner of the week this week has been Uta Hagen, mm. and, and when you consider her third question and fourth question, her nine questions or ten, if you're Paul Carmichael, her ten questions, um, which we'll come to. But I mean, no, if you consider then. the third question and the fourth question, which superficially people think are the same question, where am I? Being mm. the third question, and what are my surroundings? Being the fourth. Mm. Uh, when you examine them, wh- well, where am I psychologically? Where am I? That's you know. So your surroundings are not geog. You you occupy two different uh, sort of continuums, don't you? You, you mm. geographically, you're in a certain place, but where you are mentally is mm. a different, a completely different conversation. Which is why there are two co- there are two questions: Where am I? What mm. are my surroundings? Yeah. They're very different things. People, they absolutely are. People are like, well, they're the same question. No, they're no. not. No, no, no. Absolutely different things. Completely different things. And it's the mentality of the character that you've got to grab onto. You know, you've got to consider where are they at that moment. And the lovely thing with Uta, of course, is the play doesn't begin on page one. Because if the character's 30, what about those previous 30 years? What's led the character up from that point to this point. What's happened in their life to create that? Which um, informs where am I? Exactly, yeah. Um, and, no, I think that... See, I don't think it's therapy. I think I think it's a wonderful stretch of the imagination that the actor has to go through these mental gymnastics to create a reality. And 
and then but then inhabiting that reality that's where it becomes difficult because if their reality is one of pain in some way and you've created their past that leads up to that moment then you know them and you know what they've been through i did a play called the desert lullaby about 25 years ago and it's one of the few times where the play was so well written it was written, it was set partly contemporaneously and partly in the 1930s or early 40s. And it was, my part was playing um, a young man who went off to war. And it was the build-up of the, uh, this privileged life. They lived in a cedar tree-style house outside Dublin. And there was this privileged life all the way through. But then there was this sense of, of of a nothingness that the character had, a nihilism, and it, it drove them to want to do something with their lives. So they conscripted and they went off to war. And then the parts that are set contemporaneously, this character who's called Eddie, it doesn't feature in at all. And it alludes to the fact that it, he died during D-Day. And so I did a little bit of research, and from what I found out at the time, pre-internet, this research the most likely way he would have died would have been simply wading into the water and waiting and getting tired and drowning. So I, I felt that I knew the character and because I knew where he was heading towards, that influenced an awful lot of what I, what I played for him. It was, it's a character that I still hold quite yeah. quite close to me for that reason. So I don't see it as therapy, but I think that you've... yeah. I don't see it as therapy for the actor. I see it as though you're putting the character through therapy whilst they're on stage because you're uncovering the layers for the audience and you're delving into the character live on stage. It's therapy for the character. I th- All right, I, I get say. that. But when you are... So, generally in life, mm. when I look back... When I look back over my life, Paul, <laughs> when I yeah. look back over my life, the times that I've made, like huge artistic gestures have mm. generally been preceded by life either falling apart or mm. something shitty happening. So mm. for me, performance has utility as therapy because it completely removes me from my previous life. It's like it's like putting distance and changing and growing, right? Mm. And I don't mean playing a part. I mean... Mm oh, right, I've gone from this life where I was this, now I'll do that. And it completely, if you have a bit of a, a successful show, or even if you don't, if you're just doing a show and meeting mm. new people and stretching yourself and mm. you're putting all your bullshit out of your head for a lot of times, you've got to learn a lot of scripts, right? Mm. It's just what we're going on about all the way through uh, this chat, which has been about the show going on, no matter how upset you are, whether you're Mrs. Arthur Lowe or whatever it is. Mm. I think that, performance has utility as therapy insofar as it completely removes you from the situation that's causing you pain. Right, okay, I'd agree with that. I would agree that the actual process of the show, the the creative process, I see that very much as therapy. Yeah. I mean, my basically everything that I've done, right? My my career, my kids, my everything um, comes from a decision, a spur of the moment decision that I made in 1993, and it was because my my granddad had died in 1992, 
and I couldn't get over his death at all. And I realised the only way I would get over it was to remove myself from the situation and have a completely different life. And that was what made me think, I'm going to go to university. I was the first person in my family to do that. And that was to escape what I'd I'd been through with, with his death, which was esophageal cancer. It was a horrible, horrible end to a lovely, lovely man. So, yeah, I think that doing that... And going into that took me into a world of creativity. That was therapy, certainly. Yeah. So I think, yeah, you're right. Going the creative act is is therapeutic. Just I would agree I suppose, with that. I suppose the point is to just try to use uh, pain and adversity as as the stimulus for growth, isn't it? Really, and and change. Mm. Otherwise, if you don't and you stagnate, mm. you know, it's, it's that whole Buddhist thing about being stuck, isn't it? Yes, you absolutely. Know. So but I, I think don't... that ex- that extends to life as a whole. It's not even oh, just a creative yeah. act, is it? Yeah. But I think, thankfully, luckily for people like us, if we have a show to do that evening, like Mrs. Arthur Law did, yeah, yeah, I'll have that. I'll take that all fucking day. Well, yeah. I can go. I can go into another realm. Mm. What, what is it he says to Jones? We're entering the realm of fantasy, Jones. Yes. You know, if I can enter the realm of fantasy for two hours mm. and have uh, you know a couple of hundred people applaud me, yeah. And then obviously, and- which is examined in the dresser, isn't it? Obviously, then you've got the entire downside that you've got because <sighs> it doesn't go anywhere, does it? No, no. Oh, that's a wonderful piece. Odd, though, you. I must say. I must say that you can support this for Mrs. Arthur Lowe, but not for Mrs. Brown. Oh, God, no. No, she can go fuck off. I mean, not she. <laughs> what is it? What's his name? Arthur or something or other? Oh, I don't. Brendan something. No. Brendan something. No. no, shit. Make it stop. Horrid. Every time you mention Mrs. Brown, I have to pull out another nice thing. Do you know that? I, I by know, the way, I know. my dear boy... Right, yeah. and, and, and I really thank you for this, because yeah. you, you uh, got me into buying this last mm-hmm. week, right? Are we ready? We're ready. Oh! Yeah, man! For the benefit of those at home, Mike is holding up issue one of the Eagle Comet. Oh, the 1982 82. reissue. And also part uh, of the deal. Yes. Doom Lord on issue Number two. two. Doom Lord scared the crap out of me. Absolutely terrified me. Me too. Me oh, too. One thing mask. I spotted in this one, mm. Doom Lord fans everywhere, was mm. that obviously the Eagle people, whoever did the Eagle, because they, they went a bundle on the photo stories, were obviously fans of Peter Cook, mm. as they did a strip in it called The Adventures of Fred. Oh, my word. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's just Peter Cook, isn't That's it? That's just Peter Cook. Yes, the adventures <laughs> of Fred. Anyway, Wonderful. the Eagle comic, right? So, mm. our conversation that we had last week where you mentioned it and it was like, right, I'm going to buy this, blah, de, blah, yeah. blah, blah, um, uh, because of you. So, yeah. I remember buying that, that first mm. issue. I remember walking back from the newsagent on the Saturday morning with it. You know? I mean,. I, I, that is a far happier memory than reading the damn thing. It, it was like that walk back. Now, that's because, interesting. My comic day was Saturday morning, too. Yeah. Well, that was just that one, uh, yeah. the, the the Eagle one. But what I find of, of sort of noteworthy about this was it was because the shop Smethurst's was mm. by the school I went to, right? 
Um, and so the walk, it was to do that walk on a Saturday because it weren't a school day. You know, it was my school walk. So mm. to, to, to do it on a Saturday was sort of out of the ordinary. Mm. Um, and it was such a fucking happy memory. And do you know why I bought it? Number why one. Yes. I, I think once I tell you why I bought it, mm. you will remember why you bought it. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Give me a minute. It's okay. because of the Eagle interview in that issue. Hold on. Oh, it's Peter Davison being interviewed. Oh, in are we remembering now? We are remembering Peak Davidson. That yeah. is 1982. That's oh. why we bought it because we That's wanted the it. Peter Davison interview. We did, and he doesn't give anything away, does nah. he? If I remember, nothing, nah. nothing. It's boilerplate. It's, yes, it's, it's it's just stuff with a photo mm. from him uh, of him from all creatures great and small. Mm. Um, who better to start our series of eagle interviews than Peter Davison? Star of the popular Doctor Who television series. We tracked Peter down at London Airport just before he flew off to America. <laughs> no, he didn't fly in the TARDIS. He went by, he went by jet. So, um, yeah, um, we liked Eagle and we liked mm. this aspect of it because we always had the team in it, didn't we? We did, yeah. And they who were they were the editors, weren't they? The, the um... Yeah. Yeah. I'm guessing people like Des Skin. I mean, I, yes. I don't know. I remember the word because it was kind of, wasn't it? Didn't these guys all become Marvel? Eventually? I think so, yeah. I think so. You know. It's wonderful stuff, though. It's wonderful. It it's is. It's a wonderful comic. Eventually, though, like so many others, it stopped being printed on glossy paper. <laughs> welly of the week is ter- Terry Wogan. Terry Wogan is Welly of the week. Oh, absolutely magnificent. Yeah. Um, I thank but you how for that. Is, how is the other comic collection going? Have we made progress over the week? Oh, uh, we have 25 nutty still to get, I'm afraid. Okay. Um, and it is, it's progress is going very slow mm. um, because it's, again, it's that thing about everyone's got the first ones, but no one's got the last ones. I have the last ones now. In fact, uh-huh. I've got two sets of the last ones now because I bought more. Excellent. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, that's not moving anywhere. Mm. I mean, I've got enough shit, to be quite mm. honest with you. Um, I probably could not live long enough to uh, to read any of it. But how about your your sort of fascinations? How's the big finish collection going? Well, the big finish collection is coming on um, now. Of course, with 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 the fascination last week, I was stuck in the in the day the Earth caught fire because I decided I decided to try and reorganise the collection, and and it went terribly wrong, and there were just stacks of DVDs everywhere. So um, if I if I tilt the camera a little here then the collection is back in exactly the same way as it was before because because for some reason crossroads uh which is which is up here all the little yellow spines that's crossroads they they stand out mate they do don't they and crossroads for some reason is next to ken russell's the devils i don't know why but it works. Go on, why? You must no, no, I, know why. I genuinely don't know why. I think I put it there one day by mistake. and But now that's where it lives. And, oh, and, okay. and why shouldn't it? 
I think that's well that's a wonderful. Place it's for like it, the Great it? Fire of London, isn't it? Really, well, after the Great Fire of London, I think it was Christopher Wren, wasn't it, who drew up mm. great plans for it to be a sort of city of avenues like Paris and all laid out in a grid. And you know, there's the river, and then then you've got First Street, Second Street, Third Street, and all that other thing that you mm. have from the river in Paris and stuff like that. And then what we had because it's because it's England, is there were guys out that, whilst the embers were still smoking, with little pieces of wood and strings staking out precisely where their buildings had stood before the fire. And so when London was rebuilt, the footprint was precisely the footprint it had before, and they just yes. rebuilt it. One yes. thing I love about old London, um, and, and you know, that we could go on about it all day, couldn't we? I love that walk from Bayswater to... Um, to Oxford Street. I don't know if you've ever done that. I and you have. go past Marble Arch yes. and you go past Tyburn and all that. Mm. And then you read about how there was a standing stone where Marble Arch now stands called Oswald Stone or Osselston. And there's mm. still a bus in London with Osselston on it. And when they built Marble Arch, well, Marble Arch was originally commissioned as the gate for Buckingham Palace, but Victoria didn't like it, so they're right, all right, we'll chuck it down there then. Yeah. Uh, and then they just pulled up this ancient standing stone that had been there forever, mm. um, and then just left it leaning, apparently, against Marble Arch, and it went missing. No shit, a Neolithic standing stone went missing. Yeah, someone would have that. Um, yep. I'd have had that. But um, my point being, um, the old London stuff... Um, mm. You know, you read about things like Nonsuch Place, don't you? you oh, know? yeah, the the palace, Nonsuch yeah. Palace. and Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. But the, the, I love the fact that the footprint is still there. Um, it's been, God, I mean, I haven't been to, down to London since pre, pre-COVID bollocks. But my favourite, favourite thing is that walk along the South Bank mm. um, where, you know, to the to the Globe Theatre, but going past Burr Gardens and knowing, you know, the Burr Pit was there and that's where the Globe was. You've gone slightly in the wrong place because of the bridge. And also knowing that just up the road here on the left, that was Grope Cunt Lane and yeah. that's where the Cardinal's Hat, the most impressive brothel in the land was. And the knowing Cardinal's Hat. The Cardinal's Hat. And, and it was a while. I'd read about the Cardinal's Hat. It's a peculiar name. And then someone said, well, basically, a, a cardinal's hat is the same shape as the helmet of an erect cock. It's a phallus, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Um, and so to see that footprint is still there with Burr Gardens. And, you know, it, it is still there. The old London. I, I love that walk along the South Bank so much. Yeah, I Wonderful. mean, the whole of it is is just a joy when you come across, like, some of the old bits that have somehow managed to get through. It's just like, Wow. Mm. A little you know, bit of the old wall or something like that, yeah. To actually, yeah. Just... Well, they they only detonated the last remnants of the Roman bridge in Victorian days. Mm. You know, they dynamited that away, so we still had remnants of that two thousand year old bridge then. Mm. It's amazing, which, isn't it, that that was? Still yeah. There. Well, apparently, because we didn't understand stuff, that old Roman bridge, which didn't that stand in um, Shakespearean times. I'm trying to think because obviously you had London Bridge, which was covered in in buildings, and that was that was yeah. a, a medieval bridge. Um, but I'm not sure if the Roman Bridge still stood fully. But uh, maybe it were oh. that which was the one they said that you had to uh, wasn't it like sh- not shooting the rapids, but because they didn't understand about bridge design, the mm. the water used to rush through it at an alarming rate. 
Yeah, I think that was that was London Bridge, as was right. it. So many little arches, so it's yeah. just, oof, the water just went straight through. Yeah. But it was literally falling down by the time that Shakespeare was around, and people would occasionally, apparently, just fall through it because it'd give way and just <laughs> straight into the Thames. But, um, yeah, I, I think that, oh, that must have been beautiful to have had a wander around there. Yeah. Absolutely wonderful, but yeah. but the footprint is still there, and that's the important thing. You know, we we don't have it, but the the footprint, the bits around the edges, they are still there if you look hard enough, and that's yes. what I love. And uh, I suppose at uh, at our age, Paul, it's how I feel. Uh, yeah. The footprint of my uh, my being still it's still there. It's still there. There are the bits there. around the edges, but uh, indeed we are falling down. Um, oh yes. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 been another sort of uh, uh, psychoanalytical chat for some somewhat of a ramble, reason. yes. But yeah, that's a nice strange one, reason. Aren't they? But yes. Um, yes, 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 we are uh, in the midst of life. We are in death, etc. As Morrissey mm. sang, or Mrs. Um, Brown voice, whichever comes first. No, fuck off. Right. I'm sorry. So, I'm so sorry. immediately now, and now it's like Terry Jack's seasons in the sun. I immediately feel sick about everything that theatre and television represent. I don't want any of it. You can burn it all. Burn all them DVDs. It's hideous. Okay. It's horrible. It's awful. I know. I know. They are suggesting it might be the last one. Think on. It Me could asshole. be that. Yeah, that Brendan Fowler is not gonna. Never going to divest himself of his cash cow, is he? No, probably not. Probably not. No, no, <laughs> but no. we will. No, but we we can we can live on and keep keep the nice things alive. That's the we main shall, thing. we shall, we shall. And um, and and on that note, um, so tomorrow I have to go to uh, the funeral of my uncle, who mm. um, who was a wonderful man. My uncle mm. Jim. Uh, I had two uncle Jims, um, and and my uncle Jim Atherton, who will be laid to rest tomorrow. Mm. Um, was I suppose it's a strange one really because I suppose he was the closest I ever came to having you know like a father figure growing up. So yeah. he's a brilliantly um, he was a very massive bloke, you know, because he was a policeman. Mm. Um, so he he represented quite a lot growing up. And I was driving back the other day. I bought a kitchen on eBay <laughs> at the weekend, so I got a lot of kitchen for a little bit of money on mm. eBay at the weekend, and then. Um, madly enough, again, thanks to Mark who got me the Mr. Men album, it was like, right, there's a, a Ulster, is it a, a Belfast sink? Mm. So I went and got one of those from Southport. And driving back, it had got dark and I was looking out over the fields driving back. And there was the twinkly lights of civilization, you know, from the motorway. And because I drive, well, it's not a Vol it's a Skoda, but it's a Volkswagen, right? So mm. Volkswagens always have that Volkswagen smell. It's mm. a strange thing, you know. I mean, they must always retain that Volkswagen smell. My Uncle Jim always had Volkswagens, right? So what he used to do on a Thursday when he came round, because we were poor, um, you know, I mean, we were that poor, we, we couldn't afford a father in our house. So <laughs> so, so when he used to come round, because he had a car and we didn't have a car or anything, I was car crazy. He used to drive me around, right? He'd take me on a little drive, and then winter evenings, looking across the fields and looking at the twinkly lights of civilization and the smell of uh, Volkswagen, it was a really uh, sort of poignant moment. It kind of plugged me in, you know, mm. to that memory um, and it's a, a timely reminder of that man. Um, mm. It was a brilliant man, a very noble bloke, um, and also, um, you know, um, 
um, one of those one of those sort of reliable fixtures of our of our childhood, like your granddad that you're talking about. Mm. These fixtures that <clears throat> they're irreplaceable, you mm. know. Um, but we must replace them somehow, and we do. We must we go on. We go on. Um, but we become yeah, so. Sorry, we become them. Yeah. Yeah, well, we take their best elements, I suppose, don't we? And as, try to as, emulate. as well as we can. I don't know if we can ever be a replacement, but we can try. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, we can certainly try. We can certainly mm. try, can't we? But, yeah, so it's nice to commemorate him. He was Absolutely. a nice thing. He was well, a very nice thing. Raise a glass to Indeed, Uncle Jim. Indeed, to Uncle Absolutely. Jim. God bless you, geezer. Absolutely. So, um... Again, we're ending with a more than a hint of rouge tristesse. Um, <laughs> something nice for the boys and girls. What have we got to look forward to, Paul? Uh, <laughs> oh, what have we got to look forward to? Um, blimey. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to the fact that, you know, we're halfway through September, and that means we're nearly in October, and that's a nice month, because that's practically Christmas, isn't it? Yeah. I think that's October a nice is the... Uh, you know, it is the month, isn't it? It's, I think it's so. the one whereby it's like, right, okay, we're, you know, we used to like it when we were getting home from school in the dark, watching Jack and Ori in the dark. Absolutely. Um, nice things apart from that that I have to look forward to. Well, yeah. I, I do have a little record, not unlike your Mister Men, um, because I, I've tracked down the one LP that I didn't have from the Willow the Wisp series. No. What do you mean? No, Ma- no, 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 no. You can't just... No, no, no. Wait up. You can't just oh, yes. drop a fucking bomb like that. Mm-hmm. You, you're telling me... Mm-hmm. Right, okay. Now, this is going to cost me this. This You're will. telling me there are a series of Willow the Wisp LPs. Well, it's not an extensive one. Two volumes. However, considering there were only 26 episodes made and there are 12 soundtracks on each LP, it's pretty much the entire run of Willow the Wisp across two LPs. Um <laughs> And they are available. You can find copies and they're rather reasonably them. priced. I will have uh, them by the end of this evening. I would hope so. <laughs> so uh, certainly that uh, that's that that's uh, on its way. I Do believe, they over differ the next day or so. from the TV? It's exactly it is the TV soundtracks, right. um, but the the characters. I mean, Williams tells Kenneth Williams tells those stories so beautifully, and the voices oh. are unmistakably linked with those different characters. So you can see them. You can absolutely see. I fucking them. love Willow the Wisp. Do you remember that? Do you ever remember, we had a shop where I grew up, a bike shop called Dingsdale's, right? Mm. And so they show, they, they, and so that's Christmas as well. Dingsdale, the smell of sort of pneumatic bike tyres and paraffin, right? Mm. That's proper Christmas, right? That's yeah. proper Christmas, that shop. And in there, anyway, they used to sell like gas products. Um, and, and British gas... Right, you know where I'm going immediately. I do, don't, yeah. Yes, I do. <laughs> Go on, I do, absolutely. Well, yeah, Will-O-The-Wisp, uh, which we think of now as being one of those wonderful five-minute cartoons like the Magic Roundabout and so on that were on just before the news and heralded the fact that television was about to become boring. Will-O-The-Wisp, the character, originally started off as an advertising campaign. Uh, Nick Spargo Cartoons created the character of Will-O-The-Wisp to advertise British Gas, voiced by Kenneth Williams, and the series came afterwards. And I do remember, it's quite a curious thing, considering that the series was on the BBC, that in the closing credits, British Gas are credited. In every episode. It's very which, unusual for, for, for the BBC. Extremely. But then I also remember one of my very favourite memories, 
um, would be from when I was six, which is when the series started being shown. And it was a Blue Peter where they uh, they showed you how to make your own evil Edna out of uh, out of a, out of a cereal packet. It was cornflakes, but out yes. of a cereal packet, and then all of a sudden. Onto the set of Blue Peter marches Kenneth Williams oh. and immediately goes off script. Whatever they've rehearsed is just out the window. And he just devotes himself to spending the next five minutes to making Sarah Green corpse as much as he can, whilst giving looks to camera. And I think it was the first time ever I'd known anyone to give a direct look down the lens with a raised eyebrow. <laughs> And he was making all sorts of jokes, and I didn't know what they were, but it was the looks down and the uh, noises, and it was just that oh. was beautiful, beautiful. And seeing Sarah Green glancing off, presumably towards Biddy Baxter, who would have been looking cross, and just her un- uncontrollably just losing it uh, oh. live, uh, and that was that was. I a don't wonderful... remember that. The, the the thing I remember in Dingsdale's was there was little pamphlets on the little comicy things on the uh, on the counter with a thing called the Waste Fuel Family, oh, right? Great. And the Waste Fuel Family and Will or the Wisp, but as you say, it was part of that that mm. campaign. But I mean, you, mention of uh, Blue Peter and and also losing wonderful people reminds me of um, Edward Barnes. Yeah, who I'd not heard of, to be quite honest. And did Edward we discuss Barnes. this last time? No, we didn't. No, we didn't discuss Edward Barnes last time. No, Edward Barnes um, has passed away um, into his 90s at a good old age. But now, Smashing. If you ever want to find a man who made things nice, it's Edward Barnes. Edward Barnes is the man who went into Blue Peter. Blue Peter started 1958. 15 minutes a week, and it was literally just Christopher Trace would play with the train set, and um, Leela Williams would show you her doll, and that was it. And then you get um, Edward Barnes and Biddy Baxter, uh, who took over Blue Peter, and they turned it into the show that it still is. The badges, that was their idea. The Can I appeals. ask you where the name came from? Because I don't Blue know. Peter. I know it's a ship. Yeah, well, it's the um, it's the flag that you raise when when you're about to set sail. So that's what ah. it is. So you and and you never knew where the ship would be going. So you would raise the blue Peter, and off you went into uncharted waters. Wonderful, isn't it? So um, between him and Biddy Baxter, they created Blue Peter. But then Edward Barnes went on to create Newsround. Um, which seems to have just been because he seems to have got a little bit cross from what I can gather in a meeting and said no children should be aware of what's going on in the world. In the world, There's no reason why they shouldn't. So uh, he created Newsround, he created Swap Shop, and then he took over as um, head honcho <coughs> of children's television in the 1980s and worked there until he retired. Um, so... That's the man who, if you think back to those days after school, if you think back to the schedule of Blue Peter and Jack and Ori and Newsround, Edward Barnes, and I absolutely salute the man. He he wow. made my childhood a happier and safer place than it would have been otherwise. And God God bless you, sir. So he, we really wonderful. have all that to thank him for? All that. All that. What, That's- Jack and Ori, everything? The the output of children's television by the yeah. 1980s, that's Edward Barnes. But certainly, Blue Peter as we know it, Newsround, Swap Shop, all him. All him. Isn't that just 
Wow, remarkable, that's... stunning. I, I knew about Blue Peter, knew mm. about Jack and Ori, didn't know, uh, sorry, knew about Newsround. Mm. Uh, Swap shop at Ein, just so much that this man was responsible for. And you know what the lovely thing was? He, when he was head of children's television, if a child wrote to him, he would always write back and it was always a personal letter and he'd explain to someone would write in and say why would you move the time of, of the magic roundabout and he'd write back and he would explain scheduling decisions broken down so they could understand and he'd communicate with his audience via letter but he'd communicate to them for two and a bit hours a day straight Wonderful. into their living rooms that's the man, that is the man who will have been responsible for commissioning the Box of Delights, there you go Wow. Yes. Right, all right. Well, I'm on the bus. Yes. <laughs> I'm on the Edward, Edward Barnes. Barnes bus. A wonderful one. It's wonderful strange. Man. I've he never used to it. He used to um, have a thing where he'd go... Um, he used to go out frequently for lunch with Biddy Baxter. Um, Richard Marson, who was editor of Blue Peter, told this story on Twitter. <clears throat> he'd go out for lunch with Biddy Baxter. And they're both getting on rather a lot. And in a very loud voice, he'd announce, I'm deaf and she's blind, but between <laughs> us, we're one decent person. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful man. Wonderful. Oh, man. I know. I, these people, I mean, again, never heard of him. Never mm. heard of him, you know. And it's it's lovely to commemorate these people who are so intrinsically important aren't they absolutely absolutely you know. wonderful people we've got edward barnes we've got your uncle jim these are yeah. special your granddad lovely, my granddad also a jim special wow. lovely nice people. and you wouldn't even be sat here now uh if it weren't for granddad because mm. as you said that was the impetus to well everything oh, absolutely this is the man well this is the man who when i was eight and Revenge of the Cybermen was released on VHS for the first time. And I was like, want? Got it for me. Even I didn't have a VHS player, and I wouldn't have for another three years, but he got me that. He bought me um, he bought me the violin that I still have. Don't play it often now, but it's, it's just in there. Still have that. Um, he would... He inspired that creative side in me. Um, so, you know, one of those wonderful people who just nurtured. That was what he did. He nurtured others. Even every time I walk through Liverpool and I go past the bombed-out church, I remember he wouldn't tell many stories about the war. Um, he, he kept them, he thought they were private, th those times. Um, but he does remember uh, the evening when St. Luke's, the bombed-out church, was bombed. And he was there putting out the fire that night because um, he ended up as a fireman. Um, yeah. Wonderful. These are special people. Yeah, mustn't they? Be really are. Mustn't really are. They really are. Mm. And uh, it's it's nice to revel, isn't it? As we have this evening in the memory oh, of is. these wonderful people. It is. Um, it's so special. Yes, it really is. So I think uh, I think that's a lovely point to to end on. Really, I think so. Edward Barnes, uh, your granddad, Uncle Jim, Jacqueline Hill, John mm. Thor. Core. There's been a lot. Lawrence Olivia. To... There's been a lot of them tonight. Yeah, Vivian Lee, Olivia yeah. de Havilland. <laughs> by mistake, Olivia de Havilland. <laughs> but why not? Even why if it's by mistake, indeed. let's throw Olivia no. de Havilland in there. Wonderful yes. people. Yes. Okay then. So uh, we hope you enjoyed it, boys and girls at mm -hmm. home. And uh, until the next time, we hope you have a lovely week. And bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs> Thank you.
presented by Sir Michael Livesley and Lady Paul Carmichael. The music was written by Michael Livesley and the flutes were played by Andy Frizzell and John No Jokes Please Lewis. Nice Things is a Guilty Dog production. Thank you.